Hello everyone, my name is Yael Shachar and today I'm going to be talking about Yirmiyahu Perek Shalosh, Perek Gimel. This chapter continues the theme of previous chapters in which God has bemoaned Israel's betrayal of the covenant in language that recalls the intimacy of man and wife. Hen yishalach ish at ishto v'alchamito v'ahita l'ish acher hayeshuv elea od halo hanofti hanaf ha'aretzahi If a man divorces his wife and she leaves him and marries another man, can he ever go back to her? Would not such a land be defiled? And he continues, Now you have whored with many lovers. Can you return to me, says the Lord? Israel is described as a wanton woman who leaves the marriage bed to go whoring after anyone and everyone, practically ambushing strangers on the road to lie with her. These descriptions are stark and lurid and pull no punches. They're meant to shock the hearer. But mixed in with these accusations are some interesting lessons on cause and effect in history. When the showers were withheld and the late rains did not come, you had the brazenness of a street woman. You refused to be ashamed. The listener is meant to realize that the failure of the rains is directly connected with the behavior of the nation. Of course, Yirmiyahu's audience would have been familiar with the Tochacha in Dvarim, where we are warned that the rains will be contingent upon Israel's behavior. But now this threat is no longer theoretical. The thing has come to pass. The listener is meant to learn from this that God does not issue idle threats. Nor can the threat be deflected by idle protestations of fealty. Halo mi'ata karatli avi alufni uriata. Hayinterli olam imishmar lenetzach inedibart. Vite'ase areot vetuchal. Just now you called me father, you are the companion of my youth. Does one hate for all time? Does one rage forever? That is how you spoke. You did wrong and had your way. This phrase, hayintorli olam, does one hate forever, will play a role later on in the Perik. But for now, if the example of the failure of the reins is not enough to convince the faithless one, she has only to consider the fate of the northern kingdom of Israel. This next section continues to the end of the Perek and recounts God's reaction to the northern kingdom's betrayal of the covenant, the sin, the destruction, and God's call for the people of the northern kingdom to return to him. It can be easy to miss the fact that Yirmiyahu is no longer speaking to the nation of Judah here. Rather, he's a mouthpiece for God's passionate sense of betrayal by the kingdom of Israel and the need to carry out sentence upon the nation that he loved. Yirmiyahu begins by expressing God's deep disappointment when the kingdom of Israel began to go astray. Hashem said to me in the days of King Yoshiahu, Have you seen what rebel Israel did, going to every high mountain and under every leafy tree and warring there? I thought after she's done all these things, she will come back to me. But she did not come back, and her sister, faithless Yehuda, saw it. The prophet goes on to drive the message home by picturing God as a distraught husband, aghast at the antics of his wayward wife, Israel. He is deeply hurt by her betrayal, and time and again, his hopes that she would return to him have been dashed. Here, Israel is pictured as the sister of Yehuda, and the hope is that Yehuda will learn from the fate of the kingdom of Israel. Ki al kol odot asher nafa meshuvah Yisrael, shilachtea, v'iten et sefer kritutea eleha, v'lo yirah, 
Kritizan Gamhi. Because rebel Israel had committed adultery, I cast her off and handed her a bill of divorce. Yet her sister, faithless Yehuda, was not afraid. She too went and whored. But Yehuda fails to learn the lesson of her sister's divorce. She courts the same fate by her own faithlessness until the land itself is defiled. The conclusion is that as bad as the behavior of Israel was, that of Yehuda is even worse. And Hashem said to me, Rebel Israel has shown herself more in the right than faithless Yehuda. Realizing this, God seems to have a change of heart about the fate of the kingdom of Israel. He issues a despairing call for repentance on the part of the northern kingdom. Come back. Go, make this proclamation toward the north and say, Turn back, O rebel Israel, declares the Lord. Lo apil panaim bechem ki hasid ani neum Hashem. Lo eto leolam. I will not look on you in anger, for I am compassionate, declares Hashem. I do not bear a grudge for all time. Note that the phrase lo eto leolam, I will not bear a grudge forever, is a reprise of Yehuda's desperate but fickle plea, hayin leolam. God calls upon the people of the northern kingdom, only recognize your sin, for you have transgressed against Hashem your God and scattered your favors among strangers under every leafy tree. You have not heeded me, declares Hashem. And now, seemingly out of the blue, comes one of the most beautiful passages in all the works of the prophets. Shuvu banim shuvavim neum Hashem, ki anochi ba'alti bachem, velakachti otchem achad me'ir, ushnaimi mishpacha, Veheveti etchem Sion. Turn back, rebellious children, declares Hashem. Since I have espoused you, I will take you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Sion. Venatati lechem roim libi, verau etchem dea vehiskil. I will give you shepherds after my own heart, who will pasture you with knowledge and skill. This opening passage is famously quoted in Rambam's Hilchotchuva, and it's no wonder. It foresees a utopian vision of a future when the Jewish people will not only return to their land, but will prosper both physically and spiritually. They will be ruled by a just government, shepherds after my own heart. In fact, they will no longer need the physical symbols of the covenant, but will carry the covenant within them. Yirmiyahu says, And when you increase and are fertile in the land in those days, men shall no longer speak of the Ark of the Covenant of Hashem, nor shall it come to mind. They shall not mention it or miss it or make another. At that time they shall call Yerushalayim throne of Hashem, and all nations will assemble there in the name of Hashem at Yerushalayim. They shall no longer follow the willfulness of their evil hearts. The kingdom of Israel, it will be recalled, had made its capital in the Shomron when the kingdom was split. Now Yermiahu is given a glimpse of a future when the house of Israel will be reunited with Yerushalayim as its capital. The nations of the world, too, will recognize Yerushalayim as the spiritual capital of the world and flock to the city to imbibe its holy atmosphere. What's more, in this future of prosperity, the exiles of the kingdom of Israel will be reunited with the house of Yehuda in their own land. In those days, says Yirmiyahu, the house of Yehuda shall go with the house of Israel. They shall come together from the land of the north to the land I gave your fathers as a possession. 
But this lyrical vision is not yet, at least, to be. The prophet snaps out of his reverie and turns back to the present, mapping out the fate of the northern kingdom. I had resolved to adopt you as my child, and I gave you a desirable land, the fairest heritage of all the nations, and I thought you would surely call me father and never cease to be loyal to me. Instead, you have broken faith with me, as a woman breaks faith with a paramour, O house of Israel, declares Hashem. So long as the nation plays the harlot, she can't partake of this idyllic future. Was it only a dream, or might it still come to pass in some far-flung future? The answer seems to be yes, but only after a bitter fate has overtaken the people of Israel. The prophet imagines a dialogue in which God calls to the people to return, and they answer, Hinenu. In this imagined dialogue, the people recognize the causal connection between their backsliding and the fate that has overtaken them. They recognize that they have gained nothing but shame and confusion by breaking away from the covenant. In this wholehearted admission of guilt lies their salvation. Thus, Perak Gimel transitions into the beginning of Perak Dalid, which begins with a blessing contingent upon Israel's admission of guilt and complete tshuva. The idyllic prophecy may yet come to pass, but it hangs upon the barest thread. Im teshuv Israel neum Hashem. Alay teshuv. If you return to me, Israel, declares Hashem, if you return to me, if you remove your abominations from my presence and do not waver, and swear, as Hashem lives, in sincerity, justice, and righteousness, nations shall bless themselves by you and praise themselves by you. So two questions come to mind when reading all of this. The first is, who is Yirmiyahu speaking to? Who is his audience? It seems clear to me that he is not speaking from a soapbox in Hyde Park here. He isn't speaking to a random crowd in the shuk. I can easily imagine this whole speech taking place in the Knesset plenum today. Yirmiyahu is speaking truth to power. He moves among the elite of the nation, the movers and the shakers. In this exhortation, he berates those at the top who should serve as an example to the nation. And what is it he's asking of them? In recalling the fate of the Northern Kingdom, he's making it very clear that the first step is simply to recognize that they've gone astray and that they've taken the rest of the nation with them. Only that. Just admit that you're in the wrong, because only by this admission will you be able to recognize the hand of God in history. He's not asking for political reform or social justice. That will come later. But for now, he's simply asking for an admission of guilt and a wholehearted return to the covenant. Yirmiyahu will later explain what behavior God expects of his nation. Quote, Did he not do justice and righteousness? Then it was well with him. He judged the cause of the poor and the needy. Then it was well. Is this not to know me, says Hashem? However, in this first series of exhortations, the prophet is starting with what seems a much easier task, simply recognizing that one has done wrong. And indeed, this is the very first step in true tshuva, recognition and admission that one is not on the right path. Here the prophet is pleading with his listeners to learn the lessons of the traumatic destruction of the northern kingdom. Because rebel Israel had committed adultery, I cast her off and handed her a bill of divorce. And yet her sister, faithless Judah, was not afraid, and she too went and whored. The point here is that without the ability to learn the lessons of the past and to see God's hand in human history, it can be very difficult to connect the dots. We can easily conclude that it's all chance. Israel's downfall was simply the result of bad political choices. Yirmiyahu makes the point that these bad political choices are in themselves rooted in corruption on all levels, beginning with betrayal of the most basic facet of Israel's identity, 
the covenant with God. Because going after other gods doesn't mean simply bowing to an idol of wood or stone. It means adopting the morals and norms of another nation. It means abandoning or at least diluting one's national identification. Polytheists can easily move from one cultural identity to another, but Israel's nationhood is bound up with its covenant with one God, and one God only. It is a zero-sum game. To assimilate into another nation is to betray one's identity as a member of the House of Israel. Coming in the midst of all this, Yirmiyahu's idyllic vision of a spiritually and physically secure nation seems inexplicable. It seems totally out of place. And this is the second question. What is this incredible vision doing here in the midst of a passionate diatribe against the faithless nation? I think the answer is that for all the anger of God evident in the previous verses, Yirmiyahu himself is desperate for hope. In presenting God's perspective to the people, he risks losing his own. He becomes the voice of the angry, hurt, and disappointed divine paramour, railing at his deceitful lover. But some voice within him cries out for mercy on his people. I think the repeated phrase, Vayintor le olam, and then Lo intor le olam, is the key here. Yirmiyahu is often cast as a prophet of doom, but there's only so much sorrow one can take before ceasing to be human. And so the prophet of doom is shown a glimmer of hope or more than a glimmer, he's shown a vision of a far-off time when the exiles will return, one from a town and two from a clan. Not all of them, but some will come home. In that far-off future, the kingdom will once more be united around Yerushalayim as their capital, and the nations of the world will enter the city as guests of the kingdom of Yehuda. This vision reinforces for Yirmiyahu and for his listeners the deep understanding that the basis of all this sorrow and destruction is God's love for the nation of Israel. We can only be truly angry with those with whom we feel a connection. We can't feel betrayed if we did not expect better. And so Yermiao is given a glimpse into something beyond the coming destruction, something that perhaps we, here and now, can recognize as our own miraculous presence.